everyone, and thank you so much for tuning back into Homecoming, a podcast that provides the space for people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. So recently, because of all of the instances of police brutality and such overt racism that's been taking place in our country, I wanted to put a pause on all of the normally scheduled episodes I'd prepared and make sure to focus on Black and Asian solidarity and what Asians and Asian Americans can do, um, not just during this time, but what they can do to make a sustained effort to help support our Black friends, brothers, and sisters. And also what we can do to attempt to dismantle racist ideologies and mindsets in our own circles so that we can all work towards a country that's hopefully less racist and more anti-racist and definitely make sure to listen to the conversation about black and asian solidarity parts one and two as well as the letter to the chinese american community with eileen huang which i released last week and all of the conversations i've recently been having on the podcast and also just with my friends and family members has really brought up a lot of questions. Um, And one of the biggest ones that I've been thinking about is what if one of our friends or family members have have experienced racial violence themselves and how can they sort of come to a place of peace with themselves and their experiences and maybe channel those emotions and energy into working towards racial justice? And also for us Asians specifically, what are maybe some experiences that we've gone through growing up or interacting with our parents that have maybe discouraged us from pursuing social justice? And how can we sort of acknowledge that and help make our world a better place and for And for everyone, how can we better care for our mental health and our emotional health as we're trying to pursue social justice and activism? And I also think that this is a great episode for kids and parents alike to watch because a lot of it is about addressing race, trauma, and mental health in parent-child relationships. So definitely feel free to share this episode with your family members too. But um, I also wanted to say before beginning that I do want to make a disclaimer and say that we will be talking about issues like mental health, um, trauma, and suicide. So if you feel really overwhelmed from listening to this episode, please feel free to stop listening at any time and reach out to someone you trust whom you can talk to. Um, or if you feel like you don't have someone you can trust to talk to, you can definitely also reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, you can reach out to them at 1-800-273-8255, and they provide free and confidential support for people um, in distress. So um, I also you know, I wanted to say that before I began because I know this is these are a lot of topics that um, – are quite sensitive. But so to help me address all of these different questions regarding mental health um, and race specifically, here today I've brought Dr. Eunice Yuen 
Um, Dr. Yuan is a psychiatry fellow at Yale, and she's actually an emotional wellness support fellow at the Yale Asian American Cultural Center, which is where I originally became familiar with Dr. Yuan. And I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Uh, Dr. Yuan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad you could be here and um, be on the podcast today. Uh, Before we begin, would you mind just introducing yourself to the listeners who may not know you or be familiar with your work? Oh, thank you so much, Angelina, for inviting me. This is such an exciting opportunity to speak to everyone here about such an important issues in our society. Uh, so to echo back, like to introduce myself as well, um, I am Dr. Eunice Jun, a child psychiatry fellow at Yale Child Study Center. I specialize in Asian and Asian American mental health. Um, I see patients from pretty much a wide spectrum of ages, like young child, school age children, teenagers, young adult, adult, and even in age of grandparents. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk to you guys. Yes, I'm so excited. So Dr. Yuan, I wanted to start off by just asking you some questions to get to know you better and to allow the listeners to get to know you better because I know that, at least for me, it's so empowering and relieving to see someone who's Asian and working in the mental health sector because I didn't really see that in my spheres growing up. And I feel like there's also the stereotype that in Asian families, we don't really outwardly address mental health or our emotions. So I guess, how did you get started in the mental health slash emotional wellness sector? And did you always know that you wanted to work in this field? Wow, that's a that's a long answer and long question to think about. But I'm so glad to share with everyone. And I hope that it brings positive, motivating message to everyone that like we truly believe in ourselves and we can make this happen. Um, yeah, that is going to be a long story. So um, I actually, I was an international student. I started my journey moving to the United States when I was late teens, like 16 from Hong Kong. And um, I grew up in a first generation low income family. Perhaps my parents, like I'm the first person in the family who graduated from high school and college and medical school. Um, You know, studying abroad was a dream for me. Um, I came alone away from my family in Hong Kong, attended uh, State University of New York in Buffalo. And I mean, to be honest, I I had no idea what to do at that time when I was an international college student. Like some of us might know that like international students struggle a lot with the student visa. Uh, working as part-time, like some of us may not even allow to work. Uh, maybe we strictly have to work on campus. Um, but I, as a you know, no, low-income family, I have to work to support my living at that time. And while I was carrying a demanding major as uh, physical therapy, as a healthcare professional uh, major at that time. 
And maybe some of us may ask, like, why I chose that? Like, kind of interesting. Like, that's also an interesting answer too. Like, just to um to to share, um, you know, I was told by friends and family, and of course, like Asian family, like they were saying, oh wow, choose something like practical. Like, you can find a job, or you can stay around, make sure you can make money. Like, I mean, physical therapy does not make much money, but like that's sort of like a stable job after graduation. But I always wanted to pursue for medicine for many years, I guess, back in Hong Kong. But again, I was told by uh, something in this country that you need to have a certain status, something called a green card, um, to be even considered by medical school admission office. We were asked to provide a copy of the green card to show that we are permanent resident. And obviously, I wasn't at that time. So I, I passed that dream to pursue medical school. Um, then uh, when I graduated, um, I, you know, I thought more, you know, I graduated, I got the board pass for physical therapy. And I thought of like, hey, I, maybe I want to do something more. Um, I want, and, and I have no idea what to do, you know, like I was being asked to uh, go home or even like to find a job to support my family financially. So I was presenter at that time, um, an opportunity, an exciting opportunity, but actually, I ha again, I have no idea what to do. Um, this opportunity was a PhD program in neuroscience. So, um, you know, uh, I think back in undergraduate um, study, I, I took care of patients like who has stroke and neuroscience and think about the brain circuitry and things like that. Like I was interested about that, but I had no idea about like the cellular molecular mechanism or things like that. Like, like I had no idea, but that was like for an international student like me at that time, like I was presented with, okay, you pursue for PhD program, you have free tuition, they give you stipend. So financially I am in a peace of mind. So, okay, so why don't I take that chance presented to me at that time? So I, um, I joined in the program and I finished it in four years PhD in neuroscience. And I shock everybody um, that I passed uh, uh, the whole program with flying colors, with zero background, and I published more than 10 peer-reviewed journal articles as a graduate student. And after a few years staying at the State University at Buffalo, I was, a, I was promoted as a faculty member there um, as the age of maybe 26 or 27. And, and then, again, that's the moment when I applied for the green card. And they granted me with an interesting status called national interest waiver, meaning I have proved enough myself, I have proved myself enough above and beyond than other people in this country to stay here as a permanent resident. So I was, I guess, grateful enough, but I have proved myself enough to get that status. So now take a U-turn. I got that status and apply for medical school because I have the green card. And at that time, I went back to medical school as a super non-traditional candidate, like maybe with an older age to start my medical school. And, you know, like I think all this time that like, you know, as an international student, like I always feel small, little, not feeling in. And especially in people like me and many others who consistently managing two culture inside us. 
And, you know, as a journey of international student and later on in my research career, like interact with many postdoc, graduate student, they have international background or Asian background. And I feel that these feelings are not alone, that many people are feeling like this, feeling that not fitting in small and little are not included in this country. And slowly I realized that um, mental health carries such a stigma especially in minority population, like including Asian American, Asian international. And because of the stigma that really limit people to reach out to help and especially access to mental health services in the, in the society. And later on, as I got into medical career, I see patients, um, including Asian American patients, who did not reach out for help until it is really late. As you heard many stories, like, you know, students commit suicide in Ivy League university campuses, and many of them, they present that in a really late stage that leading to psychiatric emergency and, um, you know, uh, inpatient admis admission in the hospital, etc. That doesn't need to happen this way, as I realized. I believe that mental health can be presented as a prevention model or a public health mental health model. Just like a primary care doctor who do a, um, you know, annual physical checkup, daily self-care, you know, we can do something like this to take care of our emotional wellness before it becomes a mental illness, right? And it is particularly important for teenagers and young adults, especially when most of the mental illnesses presented at this age. So this is a critical age that we do, we have so much work to do to help Asian American mental health. And I think all together that like uh, in retrospect thinking about this question, perhaps my special unique background and journey really bring my calling to this field, this uh, emotional wellness uh, field. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that Dr. Yuan. Um, kind of related to that, so, you, like I mentioned in the beginning, I know that you volunteer at the Asian American Cultural Center at Yale, and you provide emotional wellness support to any student who goes there. And I think I've even seen adults who have come to see you at the AACC too. And I know that you also talked about how your background has sort of lended itself to you specializing in Asian and Asian American communities and working with Asian um, young people specifically. So can you maybe give the listeners a sense of what sort of work you do at the AACC and also why slash how did you get involved with the Asian American Cultural Center and why have you decided to work and focus and dedicate your time to cross-cultural challenges in the Asian and Asian American communities? Yeah, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah, I guess I, again, like, I think because of my background as um, an international student, pretty much like, you know, minority, Asian, woman, gender, like, out of all the minority, and really, like, myself and along with other, like, experience a lot of um, visible, invisible, a lot of microaggression or bias uh, all these years, and I mean, like, like many others, and I struggle with cultural, racial identity, and now I am a mother of two Asian American sons. And I realized that like that many people 
are sharing this issue, are sharing this loneliness or otherized feeling. And I just feel like um, I want to unite people who may share my similar struggle. And I want to create a culturally sensitive program or support group in the community. And I realized that um, the, being a physician, it really gave me the power and the voice, but also the responsibility to help other people and make real changes in the society. So I think that is a one important work that uh, we all need to do. Um, at the same time, like when I came to Yale as a uh, fellowship residency training, I realized that that is a huge gap for uh, Asian American students, for them to reach out for mental health services on campus, and oftentimes related to culturally related reason. Um, either they may be reluctant to reach out for, for seeing a, a therapist or a psychiatrist, or they may be like, just no Asian clinician out there to, to better understand them or connect to them. And that is definitely a lack of culturally oriented mental health program on campus. And in fact, in many places across the nation and in nowadays society, we need something like this to really target our better services in, in mental health um, uh, area. And so at that time, I reach out to um, different Yale campuses, uh, campus organization that serve Asian American student and scholar. Um, I was so thankful to get a chance to meet uh, Dean Juliana E and uh, Shiraz Iqbal, and um, you know, who unite and also unite people from Yale, China that serve Asian international student, and later also reach out to Yale Postdoc Association that um, uh, that serve international Asian postdoc scholar on, on campus. So pretty much like the whole community at Yale, uh, the Asian community at Yale that um, which is the, the the target population that I am volunteer my work to, and so at AACC um, I serve as a peer support consultant. Uh, I meet patients on one on one basis as a, a peer support to process if any um, cross cultural issue they they have in mind. Sometimes it could be related to school. Sometimes it could be related to family, and in recent years. Um, uh, we have been holding um, um, forum discussion during Suicide Prevention Week. We used to have a, a film uh, discussion of a documentary uh, reporting an Asian American student who committed suicide, and we bring that as a discussion as a group. Um, and recent months, as the COVID-19 and Asian American racism, we hold event to um, as a virtual platform event to gather everyone together to talk about this important issue. And uh, one more important thing, like um, recent in the past few months, I also worked together with uh, a group of Yale students uh, forming this um, social media group called Chat Together. So acronyms um, uh, stand for Compassionate Home Action Together, in which we use drama vignette uh, to promote emotional wellness for Asian students and their parents. So we try to create a safe space for both child and parents to reflect, to talk, and to break the stigma of talking about mental health and mental uh, wellness. Yep. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, I think it's super important to acknowledge that, um, at least for me, when I think about 
Asian Americans and mental health in a more broad context, I see two main issues. I think there is first this sort of cultural predisposition to maybe not talk about our feelings and that is sort of related to how a lot of Asian Americans grow up or maybe how our parents encouraged us or or didn't encourage us to talk about race. And that kind of ties into the model minority myth, which we will go further into later on in the episode. But also, I think second, like you said, we don't really see very many Asian American mental health counselors or emotional wellness consultants out there. So we don't really see our faces in that field either. So maybe we don't feel necessarily comfortable being in that space. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, Moving on to the questions. um, So first, I wanted to talk about racism during the COVID-19 pandemic, because there has definitely been a lot of xenophobia and sinophobia that has taken place towards Asians. And I think this is sort of exacerbated by President Trump calling the virus the the Chinese virus and the Kung flu, which he recently said at a rally. Um, So that has definitely made it just so much worse. Um, I think I think this has maybe been a kind of a wake up call for many Asians and Asian Americans that like, hey, yeah, racism still exists and racism towards Asian Americans still exists. And in a way, we're still considered perpetual foreigners in this country. So I believe, you know, we need to acknowledge that, realize that, and um, Asian Americans need to think about racism and how we're addressing or perpetuating racism more critically, um, especially if we haven't done that in the past. So in your opinion, um, in what ways has this pandemic been a kind of learning moment, I guess, for Asian Americans? Yeah, that's a, such a great question to um, to contemplate together. I I think like um, like many many of us, like because of the COVID, that really is the wake up call, as you mentioned, um, that ponder around what is our identity in this society, you know, like as an Asian American, um, sometimes we could feel like a little bit lonely, like, you know, like, especially, I guess, like, uh, as I mentioned, like for someone who carry two cultures in in us, like no matter uh, your international student, no matter your Asian American student, you carry somewhat like your Asian and American in, in various spectrum. And that's a sense of confusion and and loneliness there, um, and especially like we we talk about the the model minority, right? Like um, we we have been talking about, hey, you know, like uh, we work hard, we um, you know, academically really achieved, and and that really elevate our status in exchange of so-called being uh, acknowledged or existent in this society, but. Think about in, in COVID-19 that like, you know, no matter how successful we are, um, how how um, how great we are, we're still 
could be racially profiled, xenophobic, microarrays, and they could be implicit, explicit, visible, invisible, and sometimes we don't even consider as a minority according to some standards, some definition. So I feel like we are living in this murky definition of who we are, like about our identity and, and where we stand in this society. And perhaps like that is a self-reflection for many of us. We need to be aware the existence of this um, uncomfortable, uncomfortable feeling and be able to speak up when those moments happen, for example. Um, at least for me, like some of those moments could be, oh, wow, where are you from? Or like, oh, it must be hard for you to learn English as a second language. Or they can comment on your English accent or like some sort of microaggression. And this is something that's the moment you need to speak up and say it is not okay. Um, and, and also like, you know, all of these are really bringing up in the, a point that we need to embrace who we are. Um, we are all unique individual rather than being labeled with some sort of um, perceived characteristic, like so-called stereotype. You know, for example, if we are highly achieved academically, you know, it's really because of our talent and effort rather than because we are Asian. You know, we need to change our narrative and our thinking about this. And, you know, we need to build some effort to self-appreciate, to validate, to recognize the pride of being who we are as Asian and Asian American. Or for Asian international student, when someone, you know, point to you have some accent, like you should embrace that, hey, you know, like I have unique experience with the privilege of knowing multiple languages or knowing multiple culture and experience, rather than thinking like, hey, maybe there's something I'm lacking, I'm not fitting in, you know, like there's a mindset, you can make choices to choose what to do and to be more healthy and um, uh, to for self-coping. Um, I guess we also mentioned about like microaggression and what we do when we see them in the in the society. Um, and and it is important like we need to speak up, like why we need to speak up. If we don't, if we don't manage it, it really impacts the way how we perceive ourselves, the way we see like the self-worth and the identity. And that kind of lingering with you, like, because microaggression is something you're not sure it is there or not. Like, you may kind of back up your mind, you will think, oh, I'm, should I speak up because uh, I'm not sure it is the case? Am I too sensitive? But if you don't speak up, that feeling is really lingering on your mind for a long time. And, and so I think it is totally not healthy to keep, to keep that thought in mind all the time. If you're not sure, speak up. So um, actually, I have some way to uh, for, to recommend people like what to do when you come across with those situations, when you are not sure it is like microaggression, it is point when you don't feel comfortable, pretty much. So one, I would recommend that um, recognize microaggression or anti-Asian racism. They are there. You need to rec to be recognized and be really on on your mind, and. Two, I would, I would recommend, you need to assess, of course, if the situation is safe or not. If it is not safe, of course, safety should be the first priority. If it is safe, really don't hesitate to speak up. 
you can use a firm, neutral tone to point out that, hey, this is racism, this is hurtful, and it is not okay. And then all of this situation, it will usually associate with some feelings, you know, either it is um, negative or, or not so negative. But I want you to take an opportunity to process those feelings with your friends and your support group. So these are the three step, overall three step I will recommend people to do when they face microaggression in a society. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely agree that Asian Americans shouldn't be afraid of um, not not necessarily fighting back, but like standing up for themselves and saying something. But I definitely know that that's 100% easier said than done, like 100%. Like, for example, for me, I definitely wasn't brave enough to do that and speak up um, and say something when I was getting bullied or stereotyped growing up because I grew up in a pretty, in 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 a super white town in Missouri. And I felt like I wasn't confident enough to do that at the at that time and I didn't have enough like social backing because there weren't many other POC um to sort of stand up and support me so it's definitely a really really difficult thing to do and I mean like standing up for yourself and like speaking out against your friends potentially and like strangers when they're saying microaggressions like that can be hard no matter who you are But I think for us Asian Americans, especially like it can be difficult in part because of how our parents perceive these negative racial stereotypes and race in general, because maybe for a lot of us, like our parents were immigrants to the U.S., so they maybe don't have a really good idea of what race is as a concept and how it sort of operates in a place like the U.S. and like what racism is, um, especially when they first come to the U.S. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that every single immigrant out there doesn't know what racism is because because that's just not true. And when people start living here, you know, they will they will certainly get a sense of what racism is. But I um, also think that a lot of immigrant parents may not be familiar even now with the history of systemic racism in the U.S., which plays a huge part in racial dynamics that we see today in this country. And so I think when they are faced with their children who are first generation in this country who are being bullied and like negatively stereotyped because of their race, like parents may not know how to respond to that or approach that situation. And like to respond to that, they might say like, oh, you should just brush that off or like keep pushing forward, like focus on yourself, don't care about what they're saying. And that that ties into the model minority myth as well. But I think that is problematic. That is a problematic way to respond to those situations because um, – you know, we shouldn't just be brushing these instances of racism under the carpet and not address them um, and have kids not be able to talk to parents and close friends about these instances of racism because that can definitely turn into trauma later on. Um, yeah, so yeah, that I've definitely been thinking a lot about how 
some parents out there can develop this stronger relationship with their kids and like support their kids in the best way possible when they face racism. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, um, to know about like where our parents are coming from, like um, I can imagine like the barrier of not speaking up against racism, like uh, for parents or individual that I came across, like usually related to either they don't know what to do, like it's really like you are living in that situation is like so fast you're not fast enough to interpret what is going on to in in order to to say something to speak up for something that could be one reason uh it also someone could be um worrying about like is it going to make things worse is it going to be safe at all uh that could be some worry about that too um, either like some parents, perhaps like what you mentioned, like um, they may have sort of like some core belief that like, while well, like maybe not talking or not feeling is better because talking or feeling is not going to help. But of course that needs to be changed. No, yeah, I agree. And I think that during this time, especially I've really been trying to make an effort to be more empathetic towards my parents and other parents out there and like try to understand and acknowledge where they're coming from and like that they probably know more about stuff like race than we think they do and that they may have their own experiences with racism that they're not comfortable sharing with us, um, their children. But at the same time, like even though I don't want to tell parents out there like what to do and like how to raise their children but like I think especially if they are immigrants um I do think it's super important to acknowledge that yes like race and racism are very very real in America and it affects every person of color and it and it will affect your Asian American child and like when your kid is trusting you and relying on you and like telling you that they've been bullied or made fun of because of their race, like at school or like on the playground, like parents in those situations, I think should be, try to be strong support systems for their children. And I do think it can be very detrimental if they instead said like, put your head down, keep working, like don't like shrug it off. Um, I, I think it's, great that they want us to be strong and they're trying to help us like develop a sort of like emotional strength but at the same time I think parents should try to be warm and loving and acknowledge that emotion isn't a sign of weakness and um I know that those types of conversations are incredibly uncomfortable and emotional to have but at the end of the day I think they do need to happen and both parents and children may come out of those situations like with a better idea of who the other person is and like what they're feeling. So overall, I think we just we just need to have more empathy towards one another, more empathy all around. Um, I can't I really can't emphasize that enough. Um, and sorry, I kind of derailed the conversation from COVID-19, but we will definitely talk about 
having difficult conversations about race with family members more in depth um, really soon in the episode. But um, moving back to COVID-19, though, do do you feel like the way we approach conversations in general um, may slash should be different during the COVID-19 pandemic compared to any other time? Um, especially since many people are now in very close proximity to family members and like people they probably haven't spent this much time with together in the same household in such close quarters for a really long time. Yeah, totally. It is such an um, interesting and yet challenging time that many of us are staying home with our family. Um, yeah, I hear mixed feeling around like so-called cabin fever, you know, like it's really like lack of personal space, lack of privacy. But some of, I also hear positive story that, you know, our family eventually, you know, get into like the adjustment mode that way they really get along with one another. Um, it is an interesting time, but like I think um, they are usually I give um, ask people to, you know, several several tips when they really come close to, you know, students and parents, they, they need to approach a conversation. Uh, they can prepare themselves uh, psychologically to get prepared, especially when uh, when the heated moment, how do we kind of be mindful about how we were feeling um, to, to better uh, process um, um, not getting into the conflict. So say, for example, um, that is pretty much a, a three acronym, three R's. So the first R would be to recognize our feeling at the moment before we're going to talk to our parents or before we're going to talk to uh, our child. So recognize our feeling. Uh, we at the sense of like feeling irritable or sad or like, you know, um, uh, could be tired, could be really stressed out from whatever we are doing at home uh, for a child, could be we really worry about from school, really bored from school, for parents could be I'm worrying about my job, like variety of feelings. But before we talk, we really need to be mindful about what type of feelings are we feeling. So um, sometimes for Asian, Asian American, uh, we don't get used to the routine to label what feelings are we having and so that would be a good practice to verbalize what feeling are we having and put that onto our mind so the second R would be to realize the cause of our feelings pretty much what is the thought right there like what is, what is on your mind when you're experiencing feeling angry or feeling sad um, it could be like I'm feeling angry because I cannot really go out to socialize with my friends like there's some they're trying to linking the association of feeling and thought together so it kind of like makes sense out of that the third step the third R would be to regulate by doing something so you know you're not feeling well, you know where is that coming from, and try to modify and regulate it. It can be done simply by taking some deep breath or even to have a quick walk. Uh, it can also be like, hey, hold, um, talk to someone immediately. Do something you feel it is comfortable and soothing. So before you talk to your parents or talk to your child, try to you know adjust yourself into the right optimal moment and the conversation will be a lot better. So this is the three R's I will recommend for people to do that. Sounds good. And this is a great segue into our next question. So moving 
to a bit of a wider scope beyond the pandemic. Um, Like we just talked about, now that a lot of us are in close proximity to family members and like loved ones, it's probably very difficult to have certain types of conversations, uh, especially about race. And I know that from firsthand experience, but I think it's especially difficult during this time because we are in the midst of a lot of protests and outrage for the murders of many unarmed innocent Black people. And people are beginning to have conversations about Black Lives Matter and racism and anti-Blackness and just race in general. So in your opinion, how should kids slash students our age approach difficult conversations about race with family members who may have drastically different views from you? And like talking about having conversations with parents, like that is a whole different thing from, you know, from friends or strangers. Because like, if you have someone on your social media page who's actively being racist, you can just unfollow them. You can just block them. And and it, maybe if you have a friend who's just continuously being racist, like you can begin to start to distance yourself, your, you, yourself from them. But like, a parent, a family member, like that's a whole different story because like you are literally, you are connected to them by blood. And like in many cases, we're like sort of forced to live with them and interact with them on a daily basis. Um, So yeah, how should we approach those types of conversations? And also like, how should we approach conversations about race when maybe our parents have had their own history of racial trauma or racial violence. And I'm thinking particularly about the LA riots that happened um, in the 90s and like relationship between uh, people in Koreatown and um, Black people in Los Angeles. Um, And like in those, in those situations, like how can we help our parents feel more comfortable during those types of conversations? And like, should our purpose more be to like help them move past trauma or should we more care about like getting them to the conversation in the first place and like arriving at a state of mutual understanding, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that is such a great question. It is such a, indeed, a very difficult conversation in many families, and I can imagine also in many Asian families, too. Um, As you mentioned about, like, you know, the difference mindset or like different core belief of child and parents perhaps like we can put it in the context of culture right like you can imagine um uh some of our parents are, are immigrant are first generation like grow up from a very different society versus the child as just second generation they are the um, asian american who grew up in the u.s so the core belief of them are very different when we are talking about like you know two two people are talking with very different mindset, I think I would want to introduce this concept called mentalization. It is very important in many, many interpersonal relationships, especially in child-parent relationships. 
So um, mentalization is a concept that like where um, you are very curious and non-judgmental and really putting yourself into someone else's shoes in our conversation, in our interaction. Now, for example, when we are talking about racism issue where uh, child and parents have very different opinion, um, now to practice mentalization, um, so the parents perhaps may start to imagine what the children are going through now and uh, where they are facing, you know, COVID-19, we never have that in anyone else's entire life, or like racial trauma in the society right now what kind of emotional turmoil can may they may be experiencing in the age as young adult or teenager and on the flip side um i will encourage children or teenager also try to do the same be curious and non-judgmentally imagine what kind of life do your parents may experience at that time maybe at the, when they experience um you know racial trauma like something similar to LA riot. What is that like for them? Can you even imagine what is it like? And as we get into this mindset that we are thinking of each other's shoes and be curious and non-judgmental, we automatically set up a really safe space for our conversation to occur. Maybe we are more empathizing each other. Maybe we are more curious to learn about each other's experience. And that when people feel they are safe, they are will, more willing to talk about the experience. And maybe that's the time when parents try to educate the child. This is what happened in the history. And therefore, explain certain way I, I view what is it like for racism and vice versa. So it is really like the way of setting the frame of conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, again, like I really want to emphasize what you were saying. Like I think empathy is so important when we're approaching conversations about race or like other difficult issues and like I know it can empathy can seem like a very abstract sort of concept, but I think there are very concrete ways that we can begin practicing empathy. And like I know it can be difficult, but I think like attempting to do so can really go a long way. Um, like I think, and 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 I think when you when someone has like such great racial trauma and violence in their past, like that is so difficult. Like that, that is deeply ingrained in your mind, your mindset and your worldview. Um, so we definitely need to approach that with love and empathy and care. Um, and another thing that I've been thinking about, so after watching Asian Americans, um, the PBS docuseries, and and I know I know I keep talking about it on the podcast, but again, like I love it and I encourage people to watch. But in one scene, in in the part where they were talking about the LA riots, they had a scene with a Korean shopkeeper um, who was working in Koreatown during the LA riots and he was talking to his son about what had happened and 
I thought about how difficult it must be if his son wasn't able to speak Korean and communicate uh, with him about his experiences. So my question to you is, how should kids who have a language barrier between them and their parents, like how should they approach and have these sorts of conversations as well? Yeah, yeah, that's really no easy solution. I heard about it like uh, in, in many of the family that I came across too. Um, I guess also to expand that scope of um, uh, question, like not only language to communicate, but also the way they express emotion or affection, the way how they show care, that could be very different culturally and something like that could be also using the mentalization concept to appreciate too. Like for example, um, a, a teenager or a child try to appreciate, wait, uh, this is maybe my parents' way to express their love and care to me may not be the way I appreciate into, like I see other American family, they may be hugging and kissing and saying, I love you, but maybe my parents may never do that, but that does not mean they don't love me or care me. They may do something else to show that that could really largely like culturally different from how we perceive um and i mean like about the language it's really challenging yes uh, indeed i i i agree 100 percent about that i know there are resources in like um um uh, for different organizations who promote Asian American mental health and including a group I am working with my student too. We're trying to um, develop like some sort of fact sheets or educational material. We translate them into different Asian languages. So trying to like fill in the gap of child and parents to appreciate this concept, uh, to, to fully understand that. So like, yeah, this is this is indeed very difficult with the language and even the nonverbal communication is really different. But at least have the awareness of them, appreciate, but not saying that, hey, my parents do not love me because they didn't do certain thing. I think that is the meaning of care or love is about, you know, that um, having that mindset would, could be helpful. Absolutely. Um, again, like, I do think that empathy is the first step. Um, to meeting your parent or family member in the middle. Um, and I, I think um, wh when, you were, when you were talking about how maybe the way that parents show love may be different from how children may receive love, like that made me really think about love languages between romantic partners and this is so funny, like, I realized that a lot of people think about that, like, how might my romantic partner receive this? And like, how does my partner give love and show me love? And like, how might that be different from how I receive it? Um, and I was thinking, like, how can we sort of apply that same model to family relationships as well? Um, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah that's super important. And um my next question to you is, in terms of trauma and racial trauma specifically, do you have any suggestions for how people can get to a place of peace and understanding with their potentially traumatic or violent pasts? 
um i know like i mean like for trauma um you know it is a long standing um um painful experience that lasts for a long time and perhaps like many of of my clinical experience like many um many of us may not feel safe to talk about it immediately it's not even like something i feel anxious uh, because of xyz i can immediately talk about it it really takes time to build the trust and the safe space around people who um who who allow to show to show the support and validation so people will be able to talk about these things um i think like if we have like family members who have like uh, any sort of trauma or racial trauma, as you talk about, I think like go back to the mentalization concept, going back to the creating a safe space. If our parents or a child who can sense that they are safe enough to speak up, and they will. So it is a long, long going process for someone to be able to speak and to heal through strengthening the relationship. So that's usually a clinical approach there. So it just like, you know, if we want to put, uh, put it into clinical uh, practical term, it's like the, the therapy, right? The relationship of a patient and the therapy. People who experience some trauma, like they need to build a really strong trusting relationship with the therapy so that they, are, they, they will be able to speak up and talk about and process this, unpackage this feeling that happened many years ago and then they will be able to continue to trust to continue build a relationship in the future so i guess i can put into that like so safety security support strengthening the relationship within the family yeah and i think for young people especially i think we're often very antsy and we want to see quick change in the world and in our relationships with our parents and our friends and like in our parents themselves. But that's not always possible because mental health and like enhancing your wellness can be and and is a very long-term process. So when you think of the road of someone who's trying to work towards being anti-racist, what do you sort of imagine that road looking like? Yeah, yeah, it is such a great question. And it, it is in fact like the process of like, you know, bringing the ultimate anti-racism world. It, it is indeed a long, long road. But um, for many, many of our audience right now who are listening, um, I would really encourage like you guys are the young mind that really shape our future. If we don't change right now, then when? I mean, like, um, we need everyone know it is the action now moment. And everyone need to put the awareness and educate each other into our daily living. We can maybe like some mindset to prepare ourselves. Like we may feel uncomfortable. We may feel disturbing to hear or to talk about or feel tired about talking about race and humanity every day now, but that is okay. Be okay to feel that way. 
And then we need to unite everyone to do this. And eventually, if we educate enough, if we have the growth mindset enough, and we can influence everyone, every single one around us in the society, eventually we will have the ripple effect that happened and make real changes are coming. So it is a ongoing togetherness process to do, but like I encourage everyone are doing it together. Mm-hmm. Keep the hope coming. Yeah, and I think it's incredibly important, but also incredibly difficult to remain optimistic when we think about this long, long road to justice. But I think during this time, a lot of white people and a lot of non-Black people are are just starting to realize how emotional, uh, how emotionally draining it is and can be to talk about race. But I do think it's, it's, you know, even though it's definitely put a lot of people in very uncomfortable situations, I think that in some cases that discomfort can be good. And like, we have to be open to discomfort. And that is a step in the right direction towards dismantling white supremacy. Um, So in your opinion, how should we balance taking care of ourselves while also putting in the mental and emotional labor to combat racism and like continuing to push forward in this long-term fight for justice. Yeah, yeah, I think that is many people are thinking about the same question, right? Like it really draining our daily life right now as like what's happening in the world now. And I think like what I learned from uh, uh, many institutions that like we are dealing with right now is really creating a safe space, like back to many conversations that happened in in a a couple of minutes before, that creating a safe space that allow people to speak up the thought um, and this safe space means um, we can have a free conversation without any judgment in a supportive environment where people are feeling the same and not feeling alone. Um, so this is really like emotionally draining topic. And if we are feeling alone, things will be 10 times in, in intensified. And I can see like, you know, forming peer support group uh, within our own circle, like Asian American community, and slowly also including other minority and essentially everyone in the society that to to talk about this, to create a safe space that, hey, I can talk about this in our daily conversation. This is a chronic structure issue. It takes years to accumulate to this trauma and we expect it to take times to process and grow together. So like, um, so also the safe space also provide an environment that everyone eventually have a growth mindset and grow together, learn from that, learn from uh, each other every day about how do we come back to racism and we need we cannot miss anyone else we have to do it together and support each other definitely um and i know you just briefly touched on this but do you have any last suggestions for any asians or black folks or other people of color out there Um, during this time for self-care and how to better take care of ourselves? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, like, um, all that back to emotional wellness, we want to take care of, like, if we are thinking, feeling okay, can we, like, you know, enjoy what we are doing at at work, at school, um, you know, do we continue doing what we enjoy and check out, check in, you know, uh, check in with each other, like, you know, having that uh, intercultural empathy, um, you know, that that's something we haven't talked about. Um, back to the applying the mentalization concept to a bigger scope into someone who maybe look different from us, may, may behave different from us, or maybe living in the other side of the world or the other side of the country or things like that. Can we imagine and be curious to connect with them, thinking about how other people live at this point? And so you will have a um, uh, humanity connectiveness to, to these people. And by helping other people, showing gratitude and, and thankfulness, you are also helping yourself too. So that's just in the you know, higher, broader scope of self-care. Thank you so much, Dr. Yuan. That is all the questions I've got for you. I've really enjoyed this conversation that we've had today. Um, and thank you so much for joining me. I know that for a lot of these questions that we talked about today, like we can't necessarily give super concrete answers. And, you know, maybe that's what a lot of people want, you know, like they want solid answers, and they want to know exactly what they can do. But I think an important part of the mental health and emotional wellness sector is that we have to understand like that every person is different every person deals with trauma and hardships differently and so we need to approach different conversations in different ways depending on the person but i really hope that this conversation and the topics we covered today in this episode helped the listeners out there in some shape or form but before you go, Dr. Yuan, um, is there any last thing that you want to promote? Um, any mental health groups you're a part of? And also, where can people reach out to you if they want to ask you any questions? Yeah, yeah. I, I thank you so much. I mean, like, uh, this is such a wonderful opportunity to, to talk about this. And maybe this is one of the many conversations we are going to talk about racism, self-help, emotional wellness. And I think I can bring every audience into a deep reflection about how to take care of ourselves at this time and how do we look forward to continue this conversation. So uh, I'm going to introduce like some of these um, uh, groups or resources on campus or, or virtually that could be helpful. I, I'm going to leave the link uh, to Andorina that who will post it later on. Okay. Uh, so really make sure you know like the local mental health resources on university campus. If that is something you find it is like more uh, urgent uh, mental health um, 
concern. And uh, for more emotional wellness um, uh, resources, I, I have been volunteering at AACC as one-on-one uh, -on -one emotional wellness and welcome. We have the link there. You can always make appointment with me. And of course, this is not a type of um, therapy or treatment, but I think it serves the purpose for like really have a peer to uh, listen, to share experiences and um, to talk about things that you think that matters to you. Um, we'll also have a link that uh, mentioned about uh, the group that I formed with a group of um, uh, Yale students, the Chat Together, which is uh, using a drama vignette style that providing a safe space for people to process Asian family conflict, which is, I think it is very interesting if you can, um, if you are, if any of you are interested. And I also give a link for um, training this link, like um, uh, call Hollerback. Uh, they provide uh, all sorts of anti-harassment, anti-racism webinar training. I think it is um, really worthwhile to educate ourselves. And also a link on anti-Asian racism report, like if anyone who experienced any sort of um, uh, racism in the community, that's something we need to do. We need to report them. And this is the website I provided. Okay, thank you so much for inviting me. It is my honor to be here to share with everyone and um, I hope for many more conversations ahead. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Yuan. Thank you. Hey everyone, it is Angel Rena here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this one about mental health and racial trauma. Um, please feel free to reach out to Dr. Yuan if you have any questions um, about what she talked about today. And please feel free to reach out um, to any of the resources that she mentioned at the end there. And I will post all of the links in the episode description on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts, Anchor, wherever you listen to podcasts. And um, it'll also be on the Homecoming Podcast um, social media pages at Homecoming Pod on Instagram and Facebook. So I just wanted to say thank you for listening and also I just can't emphasize enough, like, please make sure to be taking care of yourselves during this time. I know that it's incredibly overwhelming and emotionally fraught and draining, but, you know, your bodies and your minds are number one, are the number one priorities. And without you guys, without people, you know, we don't, we don't have strength, we don't have power. So yeah, I just wanted to say that. And, you know, please make sure to keep taking care of yourselves and prioritizing your mental health and your emotional health during this time and always. And I know that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, but I hope that you have a support system there to aid you whenever you need it. And, you know, always feel free to reach out to me too, if you ever want to talk about anything. I I always love meeting new people and making new friends and chatting, especially during this very lonesome time during quarantine. So yeah, thank you so much, guys, and I'll see you next week.